Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today we discuss technical diagramming with systems architect Maya. Let's go. First question. You've spent 10 hours slogging over a sequence diagram that should have taken five. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board. And if I'm being honest, Miro would probably cut that time down by half. You know, with its AI tools and ready-to-go templates. Next, your diagrams become so bulky, it's more complex than the solar system. But all it takes is a few clicks and... It's Miro. I've used those technical shape packs way too many times. And stuff is just digestible on its infinite online canvas. Now, the final question. Everyone's brought in. But you have to make all these tasks all the way over in Jira. But wait, it's done. Is it... Miro. Easy with its two-way Jira sync. Easy to plot dependencies. Everyone always knows what's up. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people creating technical diagrams without workflow glitches. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. Do you talk about it with your friends? Do you dare talk about it with your grandparents? The Sealed Section. Talking everything sex for everyone. In today's episode on the sealed section, I had the amazing opportunity to speak with Sarah Fagan. Sarah and I discuss various issues surrounding HIV, from being able to experience pleasure while living with HIV to the stigmas attached to HIV. Sarah was living her life in style during this recording, sitting at the beach with her two beautiful dogs. At some points during the recording, Sarah's dogs did decide to contribute to the conversation, so if you hear any barking, that's just what that noise is. I really appreciate you guys listening in, and I hope that you may be able to potentially relearn what you think you know about HIV today, especially in regards to what it means to be living with HIV. Welcome back to the Sealed Section, everyone. Today's podcast features Sarah Fegan, who is a HIV leader and advocate. Sarah is the Vice President of the National Association of of People Living with HIV Australia and also a HIV peer navigator with Living Positive Victoria. And Sarah herself has been living with HIV since 2008. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today, Sarah. Thank you so much, Emily. Pleasure to be here. Uh, could you please tell the listeners a bit about yourself and the amazing work that you do? Well, well thank you. Um, so, yeah, so I do um, peer navigation, which is, I guess, most people would hear about peer support. Um, but with peer navigation, we were set up in high caseload clinics. Um, and, yeah, we, we work with people that are newly diagnosed, but uh, the program has expanded and we work with all people um, living with HIV. It doesn't matter how long you've had it for. Um, and help people kind of navigate into services or, um, you know, um, yeah, kind of deal with the diagnosis or just the journey of HIV because it is always evolving and changing, you know. Yeah, definitely it would be. I think that's such an important thing too for people to have that resource and be able to talk to someone who has experienced it themselves. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, now, I just want to make sure all the listeners are on the same page as us. Are you just able to quickly explain what HIV is? Yes. So HIV, so it stands for the Human Immunodeficiency Virus. So HIV is a virus that you, you can catch through sexual, um, through what's well, an STI, so through sex or um, as, as a bloodborne virus, so from blood to blood. Um, 
And yeah, so, and it basically affects your immune system. Um, and without treatment, you end up, you can end up acquiring um, syndromes or other symptoms, which are AIDS. So you can't catch AIDS. You need to have HIV, you know, obviously you need HIV to get AIDS. Um, but treatments now are so effective as well that, you know, so it's been, you know, a good 40 years now since HIV has been around and treatments are just so good, really low toxicity. And they also get the virus to an undetectable le level, which means that you can't pass on the virus through sexual contact, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. That's almost, if they're not going to get to a cure, that's a pretty awesome spot to be able to get to. And that would help so much with the stigma as well especially for people like having casual sex and different things because if they're undetectable then they obviously can't pass it on to other people. 100% and it's really exciting it's been a massive game changer for the community um, but it is trying to get that message out there as well that people with HIV you know are not dangerous or the vectors of disease you know like we're normal healthy people we love sex we love pleasure and we want to be able to look after our partners like anybody else so it is really really nice it's very liberating to feel god know that i'm not i'm not going to put any of my partners at risk yeah definitely that would be a good feeling are you able to shed some light about your own diagnosis and the experiences that led up to it um, yeah, so I was working and living in northern New South Wales um, and was pretty happy with my life. I had this really hot boyfriend and everything was going really well. Um, you know, I was 21 and I'm like, oh, I've just got everything figured out and I felt yeah. super confident. Um, and then I got really, really crook. I got a rash all over my body and I couldn't look at the light and so many little things started happening. Um, and so I ended up in the hospital and they were running tests, all these different kinds of tests, um, you know, for tropical diseases. I was northern New South Wales, but it wasn't really tropical, but they were checking me for everything. And finally, a nurse went, has anyone checked her for HIV? Um, and yeah, because, you know, obviously, you know, well, not obviously, but, you know, being, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed kind of, you know, you know, kind of girl next door, like average looking person. They wouldn't look at me and think, oh, she's at risk of HIV. Um, and yeah, the test results came back positive. So that was a, a huge shock. And I was just told to go, go home, have a bottle of wine and they would contact a specialist in that week. So that was kind of it. It was just the biggest shock. So, yeah, I can imagine that just would have completely changed the way you looked at life and just, I couldn't even imagine the shock in that moment that you would have felt because it was probably the last thing on your radar, especially having sex with a man because there's all, you see in media, it's men having sex with men or over in like developing countries, you don't see, like see yeah. a woman contracting it off a male very often. A hundred percent. Oh my God, exactly. And it's, I mean, but that is the, like, HIV does affect disproportionately women and girls around the world. Because of that, men, you know, men are generally the carriers. as a lot of cultural stuff, you know, the weaponization of sexual abuse and rape on women's bodies as well. Um, so women and girls do carry the burden of HIV around the world. But it just wasn't something I thought about. It was something I knew about. I'd been tested before, but it wasn't, you just don't think it's going to happen to you. Um... But yeah, like it was just, yeah, it did. It was very life changing and life altering. I thought that I was going to die. I mean, this was 2008. That certainly wasn't the case, but that was how limited my knowledge was. So, yeah. 
Definitely. And I think especially in sex education, they touch on what it is, but don't really explain it and the effects and how to actually live with it and how to cope with a diagnosis if you are diagnosed. And especially for girls, it's like, just don't get pregnant. And yeah. I'm like, well, I didn't get pregnant, but I came home with that, the Rolls Royce of STI. Yeah. Like, oh. yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know after your diagnosis that you really struggled with your new reality and went down a pretty dark path. Are you able to share what occurred after you were diagnosed and the decisions that you made? Yeah, I mean, and this is unfortunately still the reality for a lot of people. But um, yeah, I mean, after I was diagnosed, I told my partner, um, he was tested, he came back positive, um, And then he worked out that he probably acquired HIV a few years ago. So this is the whole thing and importance of testing is that you can be asymptomatic. So you can be carrying the virus, you can be infectious because you're not on effective treatment and be able to transmit the virus. Um, And that's what happened. He didn't know he had it. He had mild symptoms, like kind of like a cold and then it went away and he wasn't living the most healthiest lifestyle. So um, anyway, that was, you know, that's what happened. And we separated and I came back down to Melbourne and I just felt so overwhelmed and basically the first thing I did was take a drug overdose um, because I was just, I felt, I just, yeah, I didn't know how to function with this. Um, And I woke up in the hospital to my parents, you know, saying, oh, we love you, we, you know, we care about you, da, da, da. And as one of the nurses at the hospital accidentally, accidentally said, oh, do you think this drug overdose was related to a recent HIV diagnosis? So it was kind of a blessing in disguise because she took that burden of me having to tell them away. But, and my parents are beautiful, amazing, supportive people. Um, You know, I had really good friends as well around me. And so I thought, you know what, I can do this. I'm going to pick myself up, brush myself off. I've been through worse than this. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Um, But that's when the stigma and discrimination started happening. And that's when I was like, wow, it's no longer, I'm no longer just Sarah. I'm, so with HIV um and yeah yeah that would have been really hard yeah and um as a queer woman as well like I experienced stigma and discrimination from both the gay community lesbian community the queer community heterosexual men you know I experienced violence I was told to die you know um I was you know one point um there's a bunch of women saying that I was trying to infect all the lesbians of Melbourne with HIV, like all of this horrible stuff. So I felt like I can't turn here. I can't turn there. I wasn't really managing, you know, back then they didn't start you on treatment straight away. So we didn't have the U equals U messaging, the undetectable equals untransmittable. Um, And yeah, from there, I just, I went back to using drugs. I was obviously really depressed because I just, you know, I am a sexual person. I'm a person that loves to be around people and to feel like I wasn't welcomed or part of society anymore was shattering. And I'm like, I'm in my early twenties. This is like the time that you party. And I just felt, I felt unlovable. I felt untouchable. I just felt shit, really, yeah. really shit. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't ima- even imagine that because it'd be so hard to deal with it with the stigma that you have internalized in yourself, but then for that to everyone around you in those different communities to then put the stigma back onto you would just, it'd be a horrible feeling and really make you feel alone. Yeah. The loneliness was like totally, that's like the key there. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, it's really hard, but you're no longer just yourself. Like you are judged, you are perceived, you are, you know, everything, all these decisions are made about you based on this virus. And it's like, 
Yeah, it was a really, really hard time. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess it just kept happening. And, you know, I, I did try, like I had work and I was, you know, I, you know, trying to sort of re-engage with community and society, but um, it just wasn't happening for me. I'd met some other positive people and they were like, oh, it's okay and this and that, but it wasn't happening for me. So um, yeah, basically I made the decision just to stop taking my antiretrovirals um, and kind of, it's kind of a feeling of taking your hands off the steering wheel and you're just waiting for the car to crash. Yeah. Um, and that's what happened. So after it was many, many months and months and I was off my treatment, I was just living on basically drugs um, and was super unwell. And, um, yeah, eventually my mum, my parents, my friends were so worried about me, but I just had given up and I got so sick. I was like 40 kilos and, you know, there's nothing left of me. Um, and then my doctor actually came to my house and said, okay, if we're going to do this, you should be entering into palliative care. Now, I was in my mid-20s with a manageable chronic illness, um, but it was the stigma and the, the, that, those feelings that were put on me, um, put me put me in the situation there. I just wanted to die. Um, yeah, that would have been really hard and it would have been so hard for everyone watching on the outside because even though they'd be telling you mm. that they love you and support you, it wouldn't have been enough for you to get through that yourself. Yeah, and that's like this, I guess, you know, what I've learned and it's taught me a lot as well, just about empathy and having a bit more insight into people's worlds because we can be so dismissive and go, oh, it's all good, it's all good. But it's like, you know, you don't know what's happening beneath the surface for people. But, um, yeah, so I ended up in palliative care. Um, I don't know what happened exactly, but all I remember was getting a, given a shot of morphine and I'd watched my nan go through palliative care with cancer. And I know once that morphine's on board, you kind of lose it, you kind of go a bit loopy, you know. Um, and I remember having this shot of morphine and going, oh, my God, that's the last time I'm really going to see my mum. I love my mum. <laughs> love you, mum. And, yeah, so I don't know what happened, how it happened, but I woke up three months later in ICU. I'd been in a coma. I was pronounced dead. Like, I had organ failure. I, it was just I was, I was dead. AIDS had won. I, I had AIDS and it had got me. But um, somehow my body just wanted to keep on going. And, um, yeah, I came through the amazing doctors and nurses and just my family and people that were there got me, you know, through that. But I, And I woke up and I was kind of like, I was kind of not great about that. It was a bit disappointing, yeah. you know. Um, it, you know, it was having that constant push from people, um, kind of constantly telling me, sorry, um, constantly telling me, you know, like they love me and I can do this and it's going to be okay. And I met other people in the community and I guess this is a value and what I know about peer support as well. Like it's really, you know, meeting other people that have been in that situation, you can tell them authentically, like, this, is, this is real and this works. Um, but, you know, like it still was really hard. Like I didn't want to live. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to have to do this for them. I don't want to live for myself and I'll take my medication for, for them. I'll take, do this for them. Um, and, yeah, that was kind of how I just kind of existed for other people for a really long time. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, um, you're one of the amazing writers from the, uh, the blog um, sorry, I just missed out uh, the blog called Life and Love with HIV. Sorry. Life and Love. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you wrote a piece called If I Could Have Sex One Last Time. And there was a quote from this that it 
I just couldn't ignore it. It literally sent like shivers <laughs> down my body <laughs> and it was, um, I'll just read it for the listeners. Um, after my HIV <laughs> diagnosis, like so many of us, I felt I lost my sexuality, that I didn't have a right to sex, that people would fear sex, that I would fear sex. I was sick. I felt ugly, a social outcast, one of the untouchables. Even when my health improved, the stigma from others was so great that I was constantly pushed to the margins of society, too dangerous to touch too much of a risk to take. So I wanted to ask Sarah, after improving your health, how did you improve the health of your mind and overcome this dehumanizing stigma that surrounds HIV? Oh my God, I love that you've like read that back to me. It's, it's really cool, man. Um, it was, it was again, like I had friends and family support it was one of the biggest things, but like slowly I was taking my ARVs, my antiretrovirals, that's the medication we take to get our virus under control to an undetectable level that we cannot transmit the virus. But I was taking this medication and I'm like, oh, eventually I was like, oh my God, I'm feeling really good. And I'm like, oh my God, I've put on some weight. I got a bum again. I got boobs. <laughs> this is so cool. I look like a girl again. Hey. Yeah. Um, my hair, you know, my hair started to grow back. All these little things started happening and I would feel happy. You know, but I wouldn't tell anyone that because I'm that like sad, depressed chick. But I was starting to have these little moments of pleasure back in life. And, you know, I, I became a lot more, I guess, fearless and a lot more confident about my diagnosis as well. I wasn't going to be, oh, I've got HIV. It was like, yeah, but HIV, so what? If you got a problem with it, bye. If you do, I don't care. I don't have time for that anymore. Life is short, you know, and life's in the value in life. But it was, it was a few sexual encounters that I had. But there was one... I remember the first guy that I kind of told and, you know, he was a bit older than me and stuff, but I told him and he's like, yes, so what? And I was like, it was the first time I had someone kind of react like that. But, you know, and I've got to re-engage in really beautiful sex and really um, amazing relationships with people. And that just really transformed me from this really fearful, you know, I felt like a victim and all of a sudden now it's like, no, I'm thriving with HIV. Like I'm living my life. HIV is this much of my life. You know, there's so many other things to me. Like I'm, you know, I'm way more than a virus and I really feel that now. Yeah, definitely. I think having, especially when you have to open yourself up in those sexual experiences would have been terrifying in the moment. But then when you have responses like that, that don't shut you down would have felt mm. amazing. Did uh, H- yeah. yeah, so after your diagnosis, how did HIV then like p- play a role in who you fucked and how you fucked? Um, oh, that's a really good question. I think it came down to as well, um, knowing as well with undetectable viral loads, it, the by law, we don't need to disclose our status because there is no we are taking reasonable precaution. So, with most STIs, you don't have to disclose that you have one as long as you are taking reasonable precautions. So, that's protecting your partner, whether that's condoms, PrEP, PEP, you know, all those kind of things. So, um, but yeah, I guess like I didn't really like some people would zero sort, so they'd only have sex with other positive people. But for me, it was, you know, I didn't want to be fucking the virus, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm not going to only fuck you because you have HIV as well. So, yeah, I think it was just, you know, I was who I wanted, who I found attractive. And then I, I feel like if I have to have a regular partner, I would always tell them. Um, and if they're, if they're cool with it, then that's cool. Like, if you're not, like, it really, of course, there's an element that still does hurt a bit. But there's also that other part of you that's like, yeah, well, it kind of sorts out all the idiots. 
from your yeah, life. Definitely. It's like, well, you don't, yeah. you don't have the emotional intelligence and the like understanding to get this. Yeah, I don't have time. Like, obviously, you're gonna be able to hold a conversation, honey. So, yeah, know. definitely. I think that would almost yeah. for a lot of people with dating that would cut out so much of the bullshit that happens beforehand. 100%. Yeah, yes. it would definitely, although it would be seem so much harder at the time, you would be stepping ahead and being able to have these conversations outside the bedroom that so, so many people wouldn't even imagine being able to have. People can't even talk about if someone's been tested for STIs and sexual health or even using condoms yeah. terrifies people asking. So it just, yeah, it leaps and bounds ahead of like so many other relationships. That's such a really good point, hey. I mean, there are silver linings to everything in life, right? But, um, yeah, yeah as, as much as it sucks because you're like, wow, like, you are such a dickhead. Like, you are seeing my virus. You're not seeing the fact that I have cute hair and I'm a bit crazy and I'm a really good root. Like, that's your loss, <laughs> yeah. babe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's your loss. <laughs> <laughs> Are there um, any misconceptions that you still find are present today with HIV? Um, there's still, I know there's still a lot of fear. People think that, oh, you can catch it from, like, sharing a cup or, mm. oops, sorry, or, like, you know, it's like, you know, sharing a toilet seat or whatever, stuff like that. Um, and there is still that big fear that, you know, um, of course, if you've got HIV, you must be... Um, you know like a junkie like you know a drug user or a sex worker or um you know you're you you know you're tired with this bad brush not that sex workers or people that use drugs are bad at all i support that completely um but you know there's kind of this you know perception that you must be a dangerous woman or a deadly woman or um all of that stuff and it's like you know most people get hiv from having sex mm-hmm. and we're all here because someone had sex so can we all calm down and just be like you know, it's a virus. It's, you know, viruses don't care who you are, what you look like. It's, yeah, like it's something that just can happen. And unfortunately it did. Yeah. And I think a lot of people would almost say, you know, you'll get it through drugs or like sex work to try and make themselves feel better about it. And like the threat isn't there for them. Like it makes it so that it puts it onto something else. Like that couldn't happen to me because, you know, I'm a good person. I don't take drugs. I don't, do sex work I yeah like all those different ways when it could literally it's if you're having unprotected sex it's like Russian roulette it could literally happen to anyone yeah and I've had that's exactly right and I've had some people say but you don't look like you would and it's like well that's the whole point isn't it darling like you know they're kind of assuming oh well I've, I've asked my partner if they have any STIs and that's good enough it's like well you really just don't know like um, without, yeah, that is such a really good point that people you try and kind of say, oh, this is not, this is, would never happen to me because I'm not a, you know, a bad and inverted commas person or whatever. But I mean, it's a virus. It's like COVID-19, I think, has taught people a lot about viruses mm-hmm. too. And that, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are, if you're a doctor, a lawyer, a nurse, if you're a murderer, whatever, you know, viruses will do what viruses do, you know, they love us. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. yeah. How do you think that we could move to a society that allows women and those within minority groups, such as those living with HIV, to not only experience more pleasure, but to have their pleasure recognised and advocated for? Yes, the pleasure question. I think, um, 
I think a lot of education and a lot of ways of empowering women will come from women knowing their bodies, knowing about an orgasm, knowing about why sex should feel good. Sex shouldn't be, you know, something that's, you know, expected or something that's used against us. Um, and I think when you start talking about sex and pleasure and in, and the context of prevention and, and health, um, it's a really kind of unique opportunity where we can all go, you know, how, how well do we know our bodies and, um, you know, it's, it's that empowerment model, you know, of just going, well, we are women, but we have the right to choose. We have the right to about how. Um, and in that, that's when we become a lot more aware and educated about, you know, STIs and prevention and, and other stuff. It's a lot more than just pregnancy too. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I just yeah. to, um, after, so after your diagnosis, obviously having sex with other people would have been a really scary thing to approach. How did you approach pleasure within yourself and pleasuring yourself? Were you able to do it or did you think like could, did you feel too much shame with touching your own body? Like could, were you able to still pleasure yourself? For a long time I didn't like after my diagnosis um, and then there was like in, in the different periods where I was you know quite sexually active and I wasn't because of negative experiences um, and then I got quite sick um, in that time as well. So there was a probably a mad, a big chunk of my life when I didn't masturbate and that for me is weird because it's bad. I don't generally get out of bed without having an orgasm so I'm like why well, start the day any other way? Who needs yeah, coffee exactly. right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, but I, that's a really good question, actually. That's a really interesting question because I, I can't really remember. Because I, I, for so long, sex and pleasure was no longer about me because I was, mm. I've got HIV, I've got to make all this effort, I've got to step up, you know, and like, yeah, I guess I felt like the onus was on me to please other people for a really long time. Mm. Um, but yeah, honestly, like I can't really remember self-pleasure during that time and it probably didn't happen. I was probably so like, you know, my body did feel different, but I don't think I masturbated for like three years. What? Yeah, it's crazy <laughs> to think about when you do actually, yeah, what? think about it. What? <laughs> oh my God. I... <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we're going to yeah. do something about that right away. <laughs> Make up for all the lost time. Lost time. <laughs> Gotta go, bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's classic. Um, when you did start having sex with other people, were you able to enjoy it and find the pleasure within it? Like once you were like, Yes, I can have sex with this person, or was it still in the back of your mind and It took me a long time. I felt like, you know, there was there was you and the people you're having sex with and then there was always like HIV was in the bed as well. Always. Yeah. And it was really hard to like kind of relax and enjoy and because there was that fear of transmitting it just by mm -hmm. going, okay, we're using condoms, female to male transmission is very, um, you know, it doesn't really happen very often. It's, you know, quite a rare thing. That's just anatomy and the ability to ejaculate like men can. Um, there was so many, and I knew all the signs, so even sleeping with other women. I mean, female to female transmission is really unheard of through sex. Mm -hmm. So um there's all this but you have this this fear and so yes yeah, sex was really not pleasurable it was just like me it's kind of like you're trying to get back on the horse but it keeps bucking you off but you've got yeah. to keep getting on and eventually you'll be able to like you'll be able to ride it good you know yeah <laughs> but um yeah it was yeah it was a really hard thing to do and it was it was until really one partner that was like he could not care less about the virus he saw me 
and man that guy was great in bed I was writing poetry like literally yeah. I was like and that's when I realized oh I can relax and I'm not dangerous and I'm not gonna hurt anybody because that's the greatest fear of most people with HIV is passing it on mm-hmm. um and yeah when so that to be taken away with you equals you undetectable equals untransmittable oh my god it's like such a liberating feeling so good yeah that definitely would be are mm. you at a point now where the hiv is out of the bed while you're having sex or is it still something Girl, that... it is long gone yeah that's amazing <laughs> i i um yeah it's like sex is really it was post um me being really unwell and all of that stuff and i've just had a few really great people in my life um and you equals you messaging as well, that knowing the science is there, it's backed by 20 years of research, thousands and thousands and thousands of sex acts were studied of serodiscoordinate couples. So one positive, HIV positive partner, one HIV negative. Um, and yeah, it's just been such a, an amazing liberating thing. So yeah. Um, yeah, yeah HIV awesome. is long yeah. gone from the bed. Yeah, 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 it's just about me now. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing that you're even able to say now, like it's liberating because so many people would not associate liberating with HIV. Like they just wouldn't even think about putting those two words together. Yeah. Well, I don't think I wouldn't say, I know for some people HIV is this amazing thing. It really changes their life and they go, well, HIV has actually done a lot for me. Um, The U equals U messaging has been really liberating for me, but it's, you know, I think I was really happy and I was a really nice person before I got HIV. Um, HIV, sorry, hasn't, um, you know, HIV has taught me a lot, given me a lot of opportunities as well as far as travel and work and stuff like that. Um, It's let me meet the most amazing, beautiful people in the community. But, um, yeah, I feel like, yeah, HIV... Could have, could, didn't really need it, but, you know, yeah. like, everything happens for a reason as well, so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on or anything that you want, would want the listeners to know? Yeah, look, I just, I think just the importance of testing, um, especially for, you know, especially young women, um, heterosexual guys, you know, sometimes you might need to advocate for a HIV test. Um, so when you're going in for your SCI screen, include a HIV blood test. They'll be taking your blood sample anyway, so it's not a big deal. It's not like it's an extra invasive thing. Um, and just knowing your status, because that means that you're looking after yourself and your partners. And if HIV does happen to become part of your life, getting on treatment, you'd be undetectable. You can live a really normal, healthy, beautiful life. Um, but yeah, just the importance of regular STI screening and testing and have fun, go fuck, be happy, but be safe, you know? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Actually, do you have any advice for anyone who has just recently been diagnosed with HIV? Um, definitely reach out to um, your organisations in your state or territory. Every single state and territory in Australia will have an organisation or a peer organisation where you can connect with other people living with HIV. Um, I think that's the best thing you can do and something I wish I did a lot sooner um, because the lived experience of our community is so, so beautiful and so intense and they, they, they know how to really get you through those tough times. Um, yeah, and if you have any trouble finding them, you can also reach out to NAPWA, the National Association of People with HIV Australia, um, and they can also direct you to, to, where, to the, where those organisations are. 
Yeah, awesome. I think that'd be really important even for people who've been diagnosed for a while who something might change in their life and then they need the help and um, even just extra people just to talk to and who have experienced yeah. something similar. Do you find exactly. with your role as the peer, um, the peer, was it peer navigator? Yes, yep. peer navigator, sorry, um, that <laughs> um, is it just people who have been newly diagnosed or do you get people who have had HIV for a while? Yeah, every, across the board. So we work with people yeah. that have been diagnosed for a day to people that have had it for 40 years, you know. Um, yeah. And I guess, you know, HIV, because it is something that's not curable, it can kind of rear its head every now and again. Mm-hmm. You know, it might, might be something in the media or, you know, a health thing might come up or, you know, you'll go to, you'll be stigmatised in some way. Like, you know, um, so it is really important, I think, to connect and reach out to, your, to, to the community um, because there's so much strength within it and yeah it's definitely pulled me up and kept me going as well so yeah definitely uh, yeah. where can my listeners find you on social media or reach out to you um yeah i'll definitely if anyone has any questions or they want to get out in touch they can um email me at s fagan which is an f-e-a-g-a-n at livingpositivevictoria.org.au emily i'll get you to share that as well yeah i will um, definitely but, yeah, any questions or anything like that, please do reach out. I'm here for it. Um, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Sarah, and sharing your story and being so open and vulnerable. I really appreciated it. Oh, thank you so much. Like, thank you so much for giving me the platform, um, yeah, to hopefully just break down some stigma. And I hope that, yeah, you're, when your listeners – uh, if they ever do encounter someone with HIV, they'll be a bit more kinder and maybe a bit more understanding about what's happening for that person. Um, yeah, it's been amazing. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you again to Sarah for coming on to the sealed section and opening up about her own experiences living with HIV. I will put in the description of this episode where you can find Sarah and also resources that provide HIV support for your local area. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Welcome to another round of Boardroom or Miro Board. Today we talk retrospectives with Agile Coach Maria. Let's go. First question. You've spent two hours in a team retro, but the only input you've heard is Dave's. Boardroom or Miro Board? Boardroom. In Miro, Dave can't hog the space because everyone can add thoughts anonymously, online, at the same time. Correct. Next. You need the team to act on feedback fast, so you turn all those retro notes into JIRA tasks instantly. Miro all the way. And I can assign those tasks to teammates. You're nailing this. Now, you see hundreds of sticky notes from the retro. A real mess. But you organize them into five themes in just seconds. Miro, I basically get back an entire hour when I use its AI tools for clustering. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people running actually enjoyable and actionable retros in Miro. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.